welcome to the People vs. Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality. By diving into the choices they make and the approaches they take, but also the obstacles they face and their hopes and dreams in making real change happen. It is increasingly recognized that inequality is destroying lives and threatening our societies and planet, but also that we are at a critical juncture, a moment to do things differently. So let's take this opportunity to step back and explore how to really turn the tide and shift power for a more just and equal world. This is our very first episode and part of the first series focusing on women's economic justice, where we dive into the question, how can we make COVID the game changer we so desperately need? Not just to build back better, but to build differently with an economy that works for everyone and a society in which women's work is valued and their rights are respected. I'm excited as today's guest works at the heart of these questions as she builds power with one of the groups least protected and most affected in this pandemic, domestic workers, most of whom are women. As their work hours got cut by half, many lost their jobs and very few have access to any social security. How have they been organizing? And what can we learn from that as we take on discrimination and injustice? Can we really build a more caring economy? Grab a coffee or tea and listen in on the conversation. I'm here with Elizabeth Tang, and I'm very happy to be speaking to her today. She's a long-standing unionist and Secretary General of the International Domestic Workers Federation. The IDWF represents almost 600,000 domestic and household workers across 63 countries and has been essential in putting their rights on the agenda. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for taking the time, and it's really good to have you here. You're calling in from Hong Kong, the site of important social justice struggles that we will not be discussing today, but that I also didn't want to ignore, so just sending solidarity. Meanwhile, I'm very curious to hear from you. How have you been experiencing this time of COVID and lockdowns? How is it there? Even though Hong Kong has been luckier because the number of cases here uh, have always been low, but uh, I have seen thousands of thousands of uh, migrant domestic workers who become uh, very, very desperate here in Hong Kong, uh, don't know when they can go home. And then also, you know, when they are so worried about their families at home and there's nothing they can do. And also those uh, who are all uh, live in uh, really don't have choice uh, because of the lockdown. And then they, you know, they have to work much, much longer hours. So there are lots of uh, issues and, and untold sad stories. You have a long history of working for unions and you've been with the International Domestic Workers Federation for quite some time as well. Could you say something about how you ended up doing what you're doing, how you get engaged in this work? Hong Kong has been having a lot of migrant domestic workers from the Philippines, Indonesia, Nepal, Thailand for a long time. And I remember it was in the late 80s, early 90s that a group of Uh, migrant domestic workers from the Philippines and Indonesia, uh, sorry, not Indonesia, Thailand, uh, wanted to organize trade unions. And then they came to me because we were friends and then they knew I, I work for trade unions. So they came to me and asked me to help them to form trade unions. That, that is how I started. When the moment came, you know, that we could bring domestic workers movement to the global level, I just felt, you know, this is my place. I should uh, get in and drive the process. Wow, that's quite a story. 
amazing. They actually asked you to take up that role to support them in this. And can you tell us just why is it so important for domestic workers to organize themselves? There are many, many domestic workers in the world, you know, much more than we know. According to the latest ILO reports, there are 76 uh, million domestic workers in the world. But they are so uh, invisible and still more than 80% of them are being employed informally. It means that they are not protected by laws. If there are laws uh, for domestic workers, they are not implemented so they they don't get minimum wage protection for examples uh, they don't have sick leave protections they don't have maternity protections so I feel you know we own them so much you know a lot of our societies are so dependent on them our economy thrives because of them are uh, doing all the work so that we can work and it is uh, only right that we bring them under the coverage of the labor law, you know, which protect all the workers. So domestic workers are workers and they must be included in their protective framework. So I feel uh, the first thing we must do is that uh, the domestic workers uh, must stand up and must speak up so that uh, we can hear them, we know their needs, and we can come together to support them. And and that is how changes will come. Um, what are some of the misconceptions that people might have about this work? What do people maybe get wrong about the work that you're doing? Yeah, in most of the societies, uh, people are so used to the perception that uh, domestic work is is easy, is worthless, you know, uh, uh, because traditionally it has been a work being done by mothers, by, uh, by our sisters, uh, grand, even grandmothers, and, and 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 they don't get paid. So you know, when people hire in uh, another women to do this work, uh, they they still carry this uh, perception, uh, and and they just will not understand and also will not agree to pay them more for this type of work. So this is really a big obstacle. You know that people fail to to realize and to recognize that you know this is the work that must be done so that they can do other kind of work so so it is a, a valued work i guess gender plays into that a lot as well right yes there's a general yes, general tendency it done, yes it is done by women and and so nobody think it is important work yeah and what you're trying to do with the with the federation from what i've read and also heard um from you before is, is really to build a strong, uh, democratic and united uh, domestic and household workers global organization to protect and advance domestic workers rights everywhere. So you have you have national chapters, uh, local chapters, and then you try to bring them together at the, at the global level. Can you say something about how what are, what are you doing on a daily basis um, to make that happen, to make strong organizations uh, at all these levels? Actually, I would say 60% of our work are done at the national level or local level, where domestic workers themselves are driving it, uh, are leading it, going door to door to organize uh, or to tell the the other domestic workers that uh, they must join this meeting uh, to talk to governments, that they must uh, uh, legislate on minimum wage. So 
uh, 60% of our work and 60% and of our resources uh, go to this, uh, this work. And of course, the first uh, step is that uh, domestic workers uh, must uh, organize so that uh, they have uh, enough uh, capacity to do this kind of work. And uh, I'm very, very proud to say that uh, today uh, we have uh, 84 domestic workers unions or organizations in 63 countries which are doing this work on a daily basis. Uh, but of course, some still a lot more need to be done and, and we keep uh, doing this, making contact with domestic workers, encourage them to come together uh, to form an uh, organization to do this. We also bring uh, the voice of the domestic workers uh, to international forum. It is so important that governments who meet uh, annually, quarterly at the UN, international labor organizations, the UN structures for women, the UN women, and also for the, for the migrant workers, you know, should, should see domestic workers, should hear domestic workers, because their rights and the benefits are very much connected to the policy that they will make, the framework they will create. And for, for so long that uh, domestic workers have been uh, left out in these uh, uh, processes. And therefore, you know, as a global organization, we must make sure that, you know, every time there's a government meeting, you know, domestic workers' uh, issues and needs must be there. They must see them. They must include them in the uh, agenda. Yeah, that's something that's, that I've always seen in my work. It's so important that if you're not there, I mean, you're really mm. not, uh, your issues are not on the agenda. And, uh, but at the same time, it's often a challenge to link these sort of local, wor local work and local constituencies to these global spaces where sometimes very abstract and technical uh, discussions are taking place and everyone is living in a different reality. Okay. So that's, I think, organizations like yours show how that can be done. And I think there's also a lot to learn for others that are maybe trying to bring about structural change at all these levels. What would you say are some of the important lessons of making that linking and that's advocating from a really grassroots and constituency perspective work? Anything that's, that could benefit others as well? I think the, the challenge and also the most important aspect is that we always you know, link the, these uh, two processes in, in our programming. For example, at the national level, a lot of uh, leadership formation program takes place, but uh, we also make sure that domestic workers who undergo training as uh, leaders, as a spokespersons uh, will speak on topics that the IDW is speaking uh, at the UN level. And uh, whenever there is opportunity, we'll make sure these uh, domestic workers leaders in Kenya, in Malaysia, in Qatar will be there at the global level and be the, uh, be the spokesperson themselves so that we will not do it for them. We will be doing together or even just themselves so that uh, they know it is the same fight, whether uh, we are doing at the, at the global level or they are doing in, in, their, in their home countries, but, but it is the same, the, the same fight. We hear from Florence Susiba, a domestic worker and president of the South Africa Domestic Service and Allied Workers Union, speaking about how the pandemic affected domestic workers in South Africa. A lot of domestic workers lose their job. And the domestic workers 
the time start last year and the COVID-19, the lot of people is locked inside in the domestic workers. And then now it start to, to abuse, it start to, there are a lot of things is happening because if you go, say go out and then you say you the domestic workers you go to bring the the COVID, but a lot of people is chased away. The people lose their job, and then some people say go home and then he go home and then after that he not in coming back and then he lose the job from like that and then I don't know. This COVID nineteen day it affect us a lot. A lot of people working the two days. Some people don't even working. And then you don't have the food, you don't have the money for the domestic workers. Even that, the 350, the domestic workers, you don't have it. It affects us a lot. I would like to ask you about how COVID, which has obviously impacted domestic workers a lot. They were more heavily affected, I think, than, than any other group because of their precarious situation. Uh, because the fact they, they work in people's homes, so they, they lost their jobs. We're not protected. I mean, we've mentioned it already before. How has this situation, as well as the lockdowns, shifted your thinking about how to make change happen? Has it challenged any assumptions or how did it shift the work that you've been doing? Or has it just become more difficult in ways? Can you say something about how the past year and a half might have shaped the work? You know, when the, when the pandemic first started and, and lockdown uh, happened here and there. The first challenge was uh, we, we won't be able to implement the action plan that, that we have made. So uh, what to do? Then we started to put some of the training meetings on Zoom, on, on other digital platforms. And then we realized that more than half of our affiliates, the, uh, even the leaders, the domestic workers leaders themselves, were not quite familiar with these techniques. And uh, many of them also don't have a laptop, computers, equipment uh, like this. And in the beginning, we felt we were quite stuck. And then we realized that in the past, we have been uh, talking about organizing, uh, supporting organizing, supporting uh, a lot of uh, training, uh, advocacy campaigns. We really overlooked uh, the basic needs of relays, you know, such as they don't ha even have a computer, a laptop in the office, and then a lot of the uh, offices were not equipped with Wi-Fi, you know, technology like this. So all of a sudden, we had to look at our budget and we, we redirected some of our funds into a solidarity fund, you know, that we created specifically for the COVID responses. About 50% of these solidarity funds uh, is going to support our, our affiliates. By September last year, we changed uh, a lot already. The domestic workers, uh, our affiliates, uh, uh, who could participate in Zoom meetings or webinars uh, had uh, more than double the numbers, you know, after we have, we have done this. So this is are really very impactful because uh, it has solved a lot of our, our problems in communication and also to continue the exchanges uh, and also uh, meetings, uh, trainings. We see governments in different places uh, or different governments uh, behave differently. So in some countries, in the beginning, governments started to crack down on migrants, uh, you know, blaming them for 
uh, for spreading the virus, you know, making uh, migrant domestic workers' uh, position even much uh, more vulnerable. But we encourage uh, our affiliates to speak up in the countries that uh, no virus doesn't know the color of the people. It has nothing to do with who you are. Uh, locals or migrants, and this has uh, managed to stop such a rhetoric. And we feel that uh, this is uh, a very, very important achievement for, for migrant domestic workers uh, who will not be blamed for uh, for for the COVID. So this is a very important lesson learned that uh, you know we must speak up against this kind of uh, rhetoric, even it's coming from the government, uh, because if we don't speak up, you know people will just believe that you know it is all because of the foreigners is because of the migrants we are really capitalizing on this moment you know as government are trying to fix some of the gaps on social protections and we uh, we have to ensure that domestic workers will be included that's really interesting how covid has both showed the really practical basic needs that maybe we sometimes overlook in all the mm. We can, you can do all the strategizing in the world, but if you don't have a computer or access to internet, um, things become very difficult. Um, and at the same time, there is this, this big picture of, of changes happening, actual changes happening and opportunities at the global level and at the national level uh, that you want to tie into. And it must have been a really crazy time to try to do both and still probably. So I'm also curious to hear from you. How do you try to balance that the real urgent needs? I mean, not only in terms of the technology, but also in terms of the dire situation that a lot of the women domestic workers are in with this opportunity of change of people being more aware of the issues of governments looking at social protection and to really try to strategize for that longer term change. Can you say mm -hmm. something about how you deal with that? Yeah, this has been uh, a challenge and also an uh, interesting uh, experience for me because uh, all of a sudden, many of our domestic workers have lost their jobs or have uh, their wages uh, reduced. I mean, this is hard to imagine because they are earning so low, but still their wages has been uh, compressed. There was a time I remember that we had been asked by our affiliates uh, very much that IDWF should shift to support income generating activities. And this is really a big challenge for me because uh, this we have never done it and uh, we are uh, and we have never thought it is our mandate to provide a support of this kind. Obviously, reality on the ground really push our leaders to respond to the immediate need of the members. And, and that's, that's why uh, we have seen a, a quite a few of our affiliates have tried setting up small food stores to supply the needs in the community, but at the same time to, to earn some cash. And also a lot of domestic workers who used to be garment uh, machine uh, sewers uh, start start to, to produce apron, face mask, and, and sell. And they want the IDWF to provide this kind of uh, financial support so that they can uh, start this kind of uh, projects and to provide income for the families. It is very hard for us uh, to decide because we also uh, believe that uh, this is not the IDWF mandate and we should support the capacity building of our affiliates so that they can uh, push the government to do more. 
So now while we, we are supporting advocacy work, at the same time, we have identified a few affiliates to start income generating projects. But the objective at this stage is for them to run the business, but to generate some information around their projects that uh, can be shared later in the IDWF among our affiliates so that we can all learn from it. See first, you know, how it will be successful, meaning that there will be income generated uh, that can go to support domestic workers' real need. Number two, uh, that they are sustainable. And number three, they will also support the organizing itself. That means uh, the organization will benefit, uh, will not collapse, you know, as a result of this money business, even if it is successful. So we will be patient. We will continue to monitor. And hopefully uh, after another six months, we'll be able to gather some uh, experience and to share and we can learn. The need is clearly high. But as you mentioned, there are also new opportunities. Can you tell us more about those? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, the silver lining of this uh, COVID pandemic is the recognition of the vulnerability of domestic workers and also the value of domestic work, especially uh, those who provide frontline care, direct care uh, to so many families. We see uh, their alliances and other partners which will do similar advocacy, you know, that we can leverage on these opportunities and to work together. And uh, for example, we are now in an alliance with uh, trade unions which represent other sectors in the care economy, uh, such as uh, the nurses and other healthcare workers who are being represented by the uni and by the PSI. And we are now together in, a, in an alliance for care. And uh, of course, uh, we have different uh, issues uh, as our priorities, uh, but we agree that uh, we can be a stronger force if we join together. This is number one. So we have agreed on uh, also the, the common ask is, uh, is a universal care system. That is uh, the role of, of the state uh, you know, must always be recognized and also must be put at the, at the top priorities uh, because as workers, we will all benefit if, uh, if government will invest in care. And that will be our main uh, priority in the upcoming uh, Global Action Day on Care, that is on October 29. So we will make sure that uh, everywhere uh, uh, workers of uh, different care sectors, including domestic workers, will speak out and put out this message uh, clear. That's really exciting uh, that you're coming together with unions that, or groups that you maybe weren't working with in the past, uh, that maybe at some point there was the idea that they, there were different interests, but actually you have a joint interest, which is governments really stopping, stepping up their care mm-hmm. systems. We'll definitely be sharing also some of the resources for your upcoming events so that mm-hmm. listeners can uh, have a look at that. In our previous conversations, we've talked about these issues of why governments 
have not been so keen maybe to do this. Basically, they've left the situation for a lot of the domestic workers the way it is because it's kind of convenient to them. Am I right? Mm. Can you say something about that and how you are really trying to push them to do differently and to do better this time? Mm. Yeah, it is very worrying uh, as we see governments, you know, do not want to invest in care and they want uh, easy, convenient solution that is uh, for in individuals to find their individual solutions. And what they do is to uh, facilitate migrant domestic workers to come to the countries that allow people to hire them to to solve their care needs. And this has uh, given rise uh, to a lot of issues, uh, you know, especially exploitation of the of migrant domestic workers. Because when government are doing this, they totally ignore that migrant domestic workers are workers. And they work without any rights protection, without any social protection. So it is important that we recognize that domestic workers are providing these care needs. You know, they must be treated as workers. And governments cannot shy away from this uh, responsibility because we believe that all these uh, care workers, including domestic workers, you know, must be protected of their rights. That we can ensure the standard of care services provisions will rise and will improve. Otherwise, uh, without any regulations, people will all suffer. Even those who who need the care will suffer a standardized quality be be provided, and then at the same time it is built on exploitation of other groups of workers so this is a totally unacceptable and governments must play the role and be responsible for for this situation and i think this is the time that we have to bring out this message so that there will be change if governments do not act responsibly it is not possible for individuals the workers or the recipients of care to handle this problem you know which is too big yeah thank you we need everyone to be standing up i mean not just you not just the workers also the other unions this is of interest to all citizens of the world i would say what can others do to to support the work that you're doing to join the organizing um, so that we can build some more critical mass. Yes, now there are more and more civil society organizations uh, who also support this uh, call for universal uh, comprehensive care system. And uh, and we hope each and every one will support this call. And uh, we hope that people will support it domestic workers organization, you know, uh, especially those in their own countries to advocate that they can donate to them or donate to the IDWF uh, so that we have uh, more resources uh, to do the work. And finally, uh, you know, support uh, legal reforms because in most countries, legislations for domestic workers to protect their decent work, social protection is still lacking everywhere so this is something we have to do you know look at your country uh what are there in the law to protect domestic workers and you know it's not there or it's not implemented and it is time that uh, we all have to speak up on this so that government will not run away yeah thank you for that and um mm-hmm. I, th- I think there's uh, there's work to do uh, for for all of us, um, I know, for example, that the Netherlands hasn't ratified very basic ILO conventions like uh, on on domestic workers. 
So I, I know that there is more work to do there as well. I think you already gave us some important inspiration for what needs to be done. But I'm also curious what, what your biggest hope or dream is as you work for, for economic justice, for the rights of domestic workers, um, to close off on a hopeful yes. and inspiring note. Yes, uh, you have just uh, mentioned the uh, international labor standard on decent work for domestic workers, which is the Convention 189. My my dream is that uh, this convention will be ratified by governments and will be implemented everywhere. This will affirm that domestic workers be treated as any other workers. And, and this is only right to, to do this. Thank you. And I fully agree. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for being with us and for sharing your work and, and ideas. I really think it gives an important insight, not only in the urgency of addressing domestic workers' rights, which is long overdue, but also in some of the obstacles and opportunities relevant to others working on women's economic justice and uh, at this time of, of great need and of the importance of organizing from the local to the global level to really put pressure on those taking the decisions and making the policies and laws, uh, which is so incredibly important. So thank you again for being with us. And thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, leave a review and share with others as it will greatly help the conversation grow. And of course, join our, our next conversations on this important topic of women's economic justice. You can also share ideas, just get in touch. And the resources from today's show will be in the show notes. Ciao.